Okay, here's the deal. I want you, I'm calling an audible this morning. If you're new here, you're like, this pastor is crazy. Um, I am a little crazy, but this is not normal. This is my first time to do this ever, not just here, but ever. We're going to actually, I'm preaching from John 3 and 4 this morning. So turn your Bibles there if you have them. If you don't have a Bible, we don't have any in the back, but we normally do. Maybe you've already taken all of them. We normally have a few in the back. Um, maybe you have it on your phone, or I think we have the text up here as well. So I'm calling an audible. I didn't tell Brooks because I wanted him to read that glorious text, and I'm preaching it next week. So the more scripture we get read to us, the better. Uh, it would have just complicated things anyway. Um, and here's why this is happening. I, was, I pray the fourth Friday of every month, I get away and pray and listen to the Lord and try to just have a time for vision and listening and, and prayer. And, and I really, I, he told me, I felt like he told me a few things, that, all of which surprised me. But one of them was that I felt, as I spent time in these two chapters, him laying these two chapters on my heart. And again, I've never done this. It's not a habit. I, I'll probably do it again at some point, but as the Lord leads. So um, that's, why, that's why we're going in. So here, here's the deal, too. I'm not going to preach what I normally do, which is a homily. Instead, I'm, I'm just going to go verse by verse. Okay, We're going to read a few verses, and I'm going to stop as the Lord leads. I had already written up my sermon for Colossians 2. I didn't have time to write a new one, so I have not written anything. This is, this is a, we're reading the text, and we're going to let God just unfold it through me. Um, and I know, the th- fun thing about this is that I know, I know that he has this for somebody in here. And maybe somebody's. But it's his word, and so it's going to be for our benefit. It never returns void. That's the promise we have from Isaiah, from his, from his very word. So let's, let's jump into it with no further ado. Um, let me set my timer because we've already had some other things going on here. Okay. All right. John 3. I'm going to read a few verses here. John 3, starting in verse 1. This is Jesus, and this is Nicodemus. And if you want a title, okay, sort of trying to think, maybe I need to give my people a title for each chapter. You must be saved. Let's just camp out on that. If you need a title for John 3, it's clearly you must be saved. And there's only one way to be saved, and Jesus lays it out for us. Okay, now there there was a man of the Pharisees, John 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews, so he's a top dog, okay? This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, stop. What in the heck is going on here? Have you all had, ever had trouble with this response from Jesus? I have. And I've never quite understood it, and I'm not sure that I still do fully understand it, but I do feel like I had some insights on it on Friday as I was, as I was spending time on it. So what is Nicodemus doing here? He's a ruler. He's in the ruling class. He's a Pharisee. He knows the entire Old Testament. He has massive chunks of it memorized. It was a theocracy. He's here in Jerusalem, in the capital of Israel, and he has all the perks, all the benefits. He's one of the ruling class, and he comes to Jesus to sort of open the door to Jesus, this crazy, wild-eyed teacher with this amazing authority that is totally not in, in the club at all. He has not had formal teaching. 
He came out of nowhere. He came from the hills of Galilee. He like sort of from, like from West Virginia, just from the hills. He kind of has an accent, a Nazarene accent. And, and this is Nicodemus coming at night, perhaps because a lot of the other, as we find out later in John, a lot of the other party of the Pharisees didn't like Jesus, and of course they ended up crucifying him. And it doesn't appear too much down the road here in John. It just says, look, the Pharisees just were trying to find out ways to crucify this guy because they hated him. Because he was, he was impeding on their power base. He was threatening their power. But Nicodemus, he, he's holding out an olive branch to Jesus, and he's saying, look, Satan isn't doing this stuff. This is of God, but you've got to give me clue here. What's going on? Who are you? Talk to me. I'm, I'm, I'm offering, I'm giving you a pass into the club, but just answer some of my questions. So he kind of starts the conversation, but the funny thing is, and this is what's been, this kind of nonplussed me for, for years and years and still does, but as Jesus does, Os Guinness, he's a teacher and an apologist, uh, he says that Jesus often, he'll go to shake your hand, and you'll go to shake his hand, and then and Nicodemus goes to shake Jesus' hand. And then Jesus punches you in the stomach instead. It's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like what he does in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the, you know, poor in spirit. You know, what? Poor in spirit? What are you talking about? Blessed are those who suffer. Um, and he's doing that here. So Nicodemus is offering him a pass. And if I'm Nick, I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking, look, let's, you're going to be happy that I'm here. Like, this is me offering you a pass in on the inside. And you're going to just answer my questions. But that's not at all what Jesus does. Um, basically, Nicodemus is saying, just tell us a bit more about yourself. Jesus won't have none of it. He completely takes, he just, you know, like shoves Nicodemus, he takes him from the driver's seat, throws him in the passenger seat, takes the wheel, and says, this is where we're going. And where we're going is, Jesus answered him, instead of saying, well, here's who I am, I'm, I am from God, you're exactly right on that. He doesn't say any of that stuff. He says, true to what I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I think that he is answering Nicodemus' question. Nicodemus is all about knowing all these things, having the Old Testament memorized, obeying the law to the best of our ability, serving this good God, playing by the rules, and Jesus says, Nicodemus, I know where you're going, and I am going to redirect you for your own sake, and I'm going to tell you right now, none of that helps you. None of that helps you at all. You cannot keep the laws of the Old Testament and be good in God's sight. It doesn't work that way. You can't get into the club. You're not in the club. None of your people are in the club. They're going to crucify me. Let me tell you how to be right with God. You have to be born again, like a baby, a totally new creation, not following rules. And Nicodemus just goes, this is a madman. Okay, let's, 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 so Jesus, he just throws it simply but profoundly on Nicodemus, and he's going for the gut, but he's going to win Nicodemus to himself, and he's saying, look, you have to be born again. That's it. To start anywhere with God, nothing can be done from you. How much, how much does the baby have to do with his life? Zero. That's the point. It's all God. It is all God. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. Nicodemus said to him, his response, which we all know, how can a man be born when he is old? So he's still on the literal thing. Why are you telling me I have to be born again? That's disgusting. That's impossible. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, 
Truly, truly, when Jesus says truly, truly, you better pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Pause. What is he saying here? And he goes on to sort of talk a little bit more on this theme with Nicodemus. But I think what he is saying, there's lots of commentary, but we don't have time for that because this is a 30-minute sermon. And we got to roll. we got to get to chapter 4 and spend more time on that than chapter 3 because chapter 4, the Samaritan woman's waiting for us. So all I want to say here is this. It's the same thing. And he's probably taking Nicodemus back to Ezekiel chapter 36, maybe some other places. But Ezekiel would have known this text. It was a basic, standard, prophetic text. Um, he's talking about, hey, if you want to be anywhere with God, you have to be, again, born again of what? Water and spirit. And Ezekiel talks about those things. And Jesus is tapping into that, which is why later he says, hey, aren't you a teacher of the law? I thought you would know these things, man. What is water and spirit? It's probably this. Water means, hey, you have to be cleansed. Water cleanses. You have to be purified. You can't wash yourself. You have to be totally washed by the living God. And proof of that is that you have his spirit once you've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. His spirit comes into you and resides in you. It doesn't eat you up. He fills you with his presence and makes you alive. And that is the proof that you've been washed, that you've been cleansed, that you've been made righteous. You have to have these two things. You have to have the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, the water to wash your sins away. But that's not where it stops. A lot of times when we preach the gospel to ourselves, each other, others, we say, hey, Jesus forgive. So true, but that's not all. He also comes to live inside of you with, you know the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus in the New Testament? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he's not a ghost. Some people kind of say, let's get, pl-, like, power, I need power of the Holy Ghost. Like they think he's like a, something you plug into in a wall, like a power. He's not an it, he's a he. He's the Spirit of God, the very person of the living God, his personality in us, taking up residence, living in us, empowering us, making us new, like new babies born again to a totally new type of life that Christ has won for us and that unites us to Jesus. So that's what he's saying. You have to be, Nick. You have to be born of water and spirit or you cannot enter the kingdom. I don't care how much Old Testament you have memorized. I don't care how many rules you've obeyed. It gets you zero donut, nothing with God. So let's start over. All right? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, verse 6, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Again, two separate things, never the twain shall meet, y'all. You can't have, you can't like slowly creep from the flesh and scrub yourself up till you get to a little bit more of the spirit. It's not what he's saying. Flesh is over here, it's dead. It's how you're born. You've inherited that from Adam and Eve, okay? And, And you've just wallowed in it. That's it. You can't, there's not enough law to obey. Law just shows you your sin and your misery and your wretchedness if you're honest before God. And then there's spirit. Something God does. That's it. You're either a son of Adam or a son of the second Adam. You're either a son of Satan or a son or daughter of God. That's it. That's the two races in the world, period. End of story. So simple, but so profound. To the degree that you can tell with with Jesus' response that Nicodemus is like wide-eyed, just going, what is this guy smoking? Um, Do not marvel. See right here. Do not marvel that I said to you, because there's Nicodemus marveling. What? That I said to you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's a mystery. Okay, let's keep moving. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, 
how can these things be? You ever seen Tommy Boy when he gets his hair and he's like, this bridge embankment. And he leaves his, and his hair is just like, Pfft. and he's like, you're a psycho. Um, I feel like that's Nicodemus right here, you know, just, how can these things be? Maybe not, but that's the picture I get. How can these things be? He just has no, Jesus coming out of left field here. Jesus answered him, are you, here it is, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Okay, here Jesus is getting all Trinitarian on us. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and yet you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended, that's me, from heaven, the Son of Man. Okay, Jesus' favorite term for himself, Son of Man, comes out of Daniel and Psalm 8. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, here's, here's the verse I want to camp out on for a couple minutes. Okay, nobody understands heaven, bro, except for me, because that's my home. God's my father. That's where I live. It's where I've been from all eternity. I wasn't created. That's just my natural habitat. This is alien to me, but I've come down here and I've inhabited it, and I'm telling you, this is what has to happen to get you there, to get heaven in you, to get you up to heaven. You have to be born again. I promise you, it's true. I know you can understand it right now. I know you want to crucify me. Actually, Nicodemus ends up being a follower of Christ, one of the few, standing up for Christ later. We see some of that in John, okay? And then he says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, a very, something every Jew would have known about, certainly Nicodemus. This is a Numbers 21, I believe, uh, thing that happened as Israel was in the wilderness waiting to go to the promised land, okay? And, and in, in saying, in Jesus, in saying, this is me, this points to me, I fulfill this, he's saying what he always does, which is the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament's for me. In our text in Colossians 2, which I'll preach next week, Paul talks about that shadow and reality. We've talked about that already in another text that I've preached elsewhere, but Jesus is saying that whole Old Testament, all, all those things that happen in space-time history, that's the shadow. I'm the reality that casts the shadow. In other words, we think of it the other way. We think of like, this, the Old Testament was real, and then Jesus came to fulfill it. No, Jesus is saying, I'm the reality for which all those things played out. They exist because of me, because they knew I was coming. Space-time was crafted in such a way as to foretell me and to ready the world for me so that I could come and save it and lay my life down for it. Okay, so he says this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And just a short thing on that episode, what happened is that the Israelites were being disobedient as they typically were. That's why they were in the wilderness to begin with. And they were grumbling and complaining against God and so he sent fiery serpents among them to bite the heck out of them, and they started dying. And they cried out to God, and what he did to save them was, he said, Moses, make this copper snake and raise it up on a pole. Okay? And anyone who looks at it, here's my word to you. Trust in my word, you will be saved. Here's my word to you. Anyone who just looks, you talk about how this doesn't make any sense, except that God has said it. Looks at the snake. They, they won't die. They'll be saved, okay? 
Now, that's a mercy right here in this way, because if somebody had had to go do something to be saved, like go run over to a station and get first aid, they probably would have died, because fiery serpents in the wilderness, you know, what's the first thing you should do if you get bitten by a copperhead or a diamondback or a coral snake? You stay. You don't start running around, because then all the poison circulates. God says, don't do a thing, just trust me and look. Just look at what? Something that has been cursed. The snake in the ancient Near East and certainly in the Hebrew Bible with the Hebrew people, Genesis 3, was the ultimate cursed thing. The snake was cursed in Genesis 3. You know, cursed you shall be for tempting man and woman. So you're on your belly you shall go. He was the symbol of the curse. So a, a thing that was a, a cursed, you look at that and you're saved. And it's raised up on a pole. And Jesus says, that's me. That thing actually had no power to save. It only had power to save because of me, because it was pointing to me, because I'm the one who's going to come and not just be cursed. I'm going to become a curse. All that stuff that you've merited for yourself, through your sin and through your rebellion, that's me. I'm taking that. I'm becoming that. And I'm going to be raised up. And that raised up is a double entendre. It's I have to be lifted up on the cross so that anyone who looks to me and says, yeah, I deserve that. You took it for me. I need you. Save me. We'll be saved. But also lifted up in glory. Because Jesus went to the cross and endured hell for us, he was buried on the third day. He rose. He, he was lifted up from death and kept going all the way to heaven, and now he reigns as the king, okay, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And then he says this. He says, that's the only way. You will have to look to me. I'm going to do something you can't understand now, Nicodemus but it is the only way that you can be saved through my becoming a curse for you. This is how you're born again. And then verse 16, we always read out of context, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You want to know how much God the Father loves the world? This much, that he gave us his son. You want to know his heart for you? Jesus, that's his heart for you. That's how much he loves you. That he gave his only son, that whoever, does that, does that say except for the prostitute, and except for the drunk dude, and except for the guy that beats his wife, and except for the dirty, filthy, prideful guy that hides all of his sins. Were there any exceptions there? No. He said, whoever. But you have to do this. Whoever believes in him, whoever looks to that cursed thing and says, yeah, you died for me. That's me. I believe. Should not perish, but have eternal life. Y'all, and that is Think about John 3.16. The doors are just wide open. Anyone who comes to Christ, anyone at all, you look to him and you're saved. But look at what he says. If you do that, you won't perish. That word is frightening. It basically means to be eternally undone. The tacit thing here is that Jesus is saying, look, if you don't look to me, cursed in your place, you're going to perish. That's, that's where every single human is headed, sliding of their own will, rebelling against God, even in obedience, even in outward obedience, cursing God in our hearts. Okay, no one has done good, not even one. We are all corrupt. And Jesus says, we, you will perish in your sins if you don't look to me, Nicodemus. You cannot do enough good stuff. You cannot memorize. You cannot get enough gold stars. You cannot go to church enough but I'm going to perish for you. So come to me and be saved. And not just be saved to go a place, but be saved to have eternal life starting in you. The minute you trust that deposit of God 
the life in you that will well up to fountains of living water that will mean that you have life in you forever. You cannot die. You will be with God forever, and you will get a new body when Christ comes again, okay? And then the last verse in chapter 3, he kind of says something similar. Again, it's a frightening verse. It's, I've never heard it preached on. John 3.36, it, it closes up the chapter, and then it'll, it'll lead us into John 4. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Boom. Simple. Profound. But then the converse. Whoever does not obey the Son, and what's to obey the Son? To believe in Him. To believe in Him, that He is who He said He was, that He died for you, that He rose again, that He is reigning, and He calls you to Himself. To believe in Him. To believe that he lived the life that you can't live of obedience and he died the death that you deserve on the cross. That's the obedience that God requires. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But what? What's your destiny? What's your position? A frightening one. But the wrath of God remains on him. What is the implication there? Christ took that wrath for all who look to him. That's why when we drink the cup of wine, that's one of the things we think on. It's the cup of the wrath of God Almighty justly poured out for our sins. God is just. He can't let sin go. So he created a way for us to be free and to, to live and to be born, which is to crush his son and to put all of our sins on his son, just and loving, that great mystery that Chris was talking about earlier. Let's move. Let's slide now into chapter 4, okay? We have about 10 minutes. This is a beauty, 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 beauty of a passage. So right after that, you have this one you-must-be-saved thing with Nicodemus, and then we switch over. Jesus says, I'm going to journey north because he, he senses some things, and we're going to read about them in just a second. The Pharisees start to get jealous. It's a, it's a hotbed of I'm going to kill you that's already starting to percolate in Jerusalem, so he's like, I'm out of here. And he does this a lot in the Gospels because he died on his own timetable. If the Gospels tell us one thing, they tell us Jesus came for one reason, to die, and he was the master of his death. There were a lot of times where he would just walk through a crowd. Like once he just walked in Mark 1, I think, he walks through a crowd in Luke 4 for, for sure that's trying to push him off a cliff after he's just said, basically, hey, I fulfill the Old Testament and you're wicked. And they literally, they're like, the first minute they're like, Jesus, you're the best. We love you. Let's make you king. Next minute they're like, you're going to die. And they go to push him off a cliff and that, because the town is right on the edge of a cliff and it just says, wasn't his time, so he just walked through and left. But that's what Jesus does, okay, because he's totally in control. He came to die, so you're not going to crucify him unless it's totally according to his plan, right? So um, he switches from Nicodemus, and here's how you, you must be saved, Nicodemus. I'm going to rock your world. You're going to come to me eventually. You're going to be one of my followers. Um, but here's how it has to happen. It can't happen with your strength. It has to happen with all of what I'm doing. So that's you must be saved. This is what being saved looks like. If you want a title for chapter 4, all you note-takers and you systematic thinkers, this is, uh, this is what being saved looks like. We get a window into that. So Jesus heads north from Jerusalem up into kind of where he's from in the hills. He was born in Bethlehem, but he spent most of his life up in um, the Galilee area, Nazareth. And so he's going up to, up to uh, the north, up near the Sea of Galilee. But if you know anything about your geography of, of the Near East, in Palestine, you know that what's between Jerusalem, where he's heading from, Judea, and the Sea of Galilee? Samaria. That's right. Somebody said it. 
Samaria's between them. And here's what it says. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus did not, him, did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea. So he's like, okay, they're going to try to kill me, and it's not my time yet. He left Judea, and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass, I want you to focus on this, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Okay, pause. He had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. You know what most Jews did? Because Samaritans, Samaritans were the ones who lived in Samaria. They had a corrupt scripture, and they, were, they had mongrelized the true faith, okay? They weren't purebred Israelites, number one. And they also had their own scriptures. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch, something that, anyway, we, we study it in, in the academy today. But it's, it's not the same as the Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible that Jesus had and that we have. And so that's one of the reasons later Jesus says, hey, salvation's from the Jews. If you want to know how to be saved, what points to me, it's basically what he's saying, you've got to go to the Old Testament. You've got to go to the 22, or in our case, 39. It's the same, don't worry, it's the same amount of material. The, Jew, the Hebrew Bible is just divided up a little differently, okay? The Samaritans had a different Bible. So Jews didn't want anything to do with them. So Jews would just go around. They'd make the trip longer, and they'd just bypass Samaria, okay? Jesus doesn't do that. He has to go through Samaria. That word is day in the, in the, in the Greek, and it's aike or tenerke is similar in Spanish. It means, it, it doesn't just mean he had to go like, yeah, he, he had to cut through there because it was the shortest route. It also meant it, every other time it's used this way, it's used in John, it means that he had to do something because it was on his radar from God. It was part of his mission from God that he had to accomplish. So there's a lot more here than just, I'm coming through Samaria. I sit down by a well. Jesus is going after this woman. Hmm? He has to. It's, it's, it's from the Father. There's an appointment that's been made before the councils of the world. Jesus is going after her. This lady that no other Jewish man would touch. He just goes right in. He has to talk to her. All right, check it out. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. We're going way back in the Old Testament here, the patriarch. Jacob's well was there. Uh-oh, I'll, I'll finish with the uh-oh. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, okay, it's where you get water, right? Okay, so that's significant enough for now. He's thirsty. But Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he's fully human. He gets wearied. This is part of his humiliation, part of his humility, sinless but fully human. Gets tired, has to sleep, has to use the restroom, has to eat. Okay? Weird as he was from his journey, he was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was about noon, hottest part of the day. Nobody's getting water because you go, when do you go to get water as a woman? You go in the cool. You go in the morning, you go in the evening, you don't come blazing hot noon. But check this out. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Hmm. Well, we learn later, I'm not going to wait, we learn at the end where we'll finish. Why is she coming right now? Because she has stuff to hide. I'll just say that. We'll get into more of it later. She'll tell you what she has to hide. Because she, she is not accessible in that, even in that society. Okay? She's going by herself at a hot part of the day when nobody else goes, so she doesn't have to associate with these other people who are going to judge her and gossip about her. Okay? So she goes there. Here's Jesus. Uh-oh, happenstance. Nope, I had to. I'm coming after you. Right? coming after you. Okay. 
Um, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, he engages her. Boom, engages her. Give me a drink. Seems simple enough. Mistake. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, so they're all alone. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, she notices this is strange, right? And she's, she's bold. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A woman of Samaria. She gets it. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So what, what do I expect him to say? I expect him to say, if it's a normal exchange, which it never is with Jesus, right? Um, look, give me a drink, and uh, if I've asked you give me a drink, just give me a drink. That's not what he says. He says, he ups the ante so much, just like with Nicodemus. He says, man, if you knew who I was, you'd ask for basically eternal life. Yeah, okay, if I knew who you were, that's right, I would. Um, okay, so already my mind's being blown here. Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This lady has no idea what he's talking about. We only do because we've read it a thousand times, and we're on this side of, of things. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, <clears throat> you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Fair enough. She's a sharp one. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank for it from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, yeah, but everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Wow. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Sounds fantastic so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, she's just thinking along physical lines, right? Like I'll never, it's like the eternal Gatorade. It never runs out. I just never have to go back and do this thing again. In the heat of the day, this pot is really heavy. Jesus said to her, verse 16, go, okay. Now, he's downshifting. He, he's doing what he did with Nicodemus here. Jesus said to her, go, call, because she, she's up here, right? She's up here. I want some water. Give me some of that water that never runs out so I can just never be thirsty and I don't have to go do this and come in the middle of the day for this huge, with this huge pot and fill it up. It's a deep well and it's a lot of work and that sounds awesome. Give me that eternal Gatorade. He's like, okay, we're going down, breaking down into, I, I need to get you somewhere. So what does he do? Here's what I want to preach. I feel like maybe this is the reason God had me. I don't know. Only he knows and his word never returns void, so it's his business. But I love this, what we're about to hit. Look what Jesus does. Stay with me, and then we'll land the plane after a bit. We're, we're close. Okay? Jesus said to her, out of left field, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Uh, Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, what, um, what he doesn't do is blast her out of the water. Because she does tell him technically the truth. I don't have a husband. What she doesn't, she, but she's dissimulating. Right? What she doesn't do is tell him the whole truth. She's telling him a bit of the truth to hide the truth, which is, I'm a Trixie, and uh, I've had five husbands, 
And who knows if they were her fault or the husband's fault, but there's some mess going on there. And the guy that she's shacking up with now, not her husband, okay? So she doesn't let any of that be known. She just says, truthfully, I don't have a husband. Jesus doesn't go, you know, I mean, he kind of does, but he, he's, he says, you know what? He kind of does that, but in a, in a really gentle way where he's trying to get after her soul, her heart. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband, that's true. He, he gives her that concession. Um, because the guy you're living with now is not your husband, but you've had five. So he does, on the back end, shows her, okay, you're not hiding from me. You can't hide from me. And here's the thing I want to preach. And then we'll close it down as we read through the rest. Not of the chapter, but of this, of this passage here. This is where the conversation starts for this lady. I don't know where I read it, because again, I... God called an audible on, I feel, on Friday, and here we are. I, you know, I read the passage and meditated on it, prayed, but I didn't have time to do a lot of research. And, um, but somebody that read recently on the top right part of the page said, this is where the conversation with Christ starts. Christianity absolutely means zero to us until this moment. It wasn't a commentary on this text at all, but it was just a broad saying. Jesus has nothing to give to us until we get here, until Jesus takes us here and we realize, you know what? I'm a filthy sinner. I, I've done everything wrong. I can't do it. I have things that I'm hiding. This is where the conversation starts for this lady. And guys, this is where the conversation starts for all of us. God can say nothing to us that grabs us and that makes Christ worth anything to us until we realize that we are in the place of this woman. That's it, okay? That's right. What you've said is true. The, the guy you're living, shacking up with now is not your husband. You've had five. The woman said to him, okay, she's trying to, <laughs> she's trying to change the subject. She's a master. The woman said to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place. You know, instead of being like, you're right, help me. She doesn't do that, you know. She just keeps, and Jesus lets her go for a little bit, but he's going to come back and get her because um, he's after her heart. This is, this is, he's come for her, right? Don't forget that. He's come for you. That's what he does with each and every single one of us. He comes for you. He has your name written on his heart. He comes after you, just like he came after this woman at the well. Uh, Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You won't have to go to a temple. You won't have to go to a place. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I am the truth. What is Jesus? How is Jesus the truth? You are this wicked that I need to go to the cross for you, and you are this loved that I went to the cross for you. Hmm? And what is the Spirit, his own Spirit, that makes us alive? That's the only way to the Father. Just like he said to Nicodemus. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's not seeking perfect people. He didn't come for perfect people. He came for sinners. That's all he came. He likes them. He loves them. He wants them to be his own. That's the point. 
That's who the Father is seeking, not people trying to come to church and look nice. That's not who he came for. He came for wretched sinners like me and like you. But until we get to the place where we go, ooh, I don't have a husband, this conversation means nothing. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, first, first time he reveals himself as Messiah to a person in John, right here to this woman. Doesn't do it to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Doesn't do it to his disciples. They're gone getting lunch. Does it to a filthy woman. Yes, about to be made completely clean. I who speak to you am he. Guys, in the Greek, I did have enough <laughs> time to look up this phrase in the Greek. This one phrase. It says literally, ego am I. That's, it doesn't say, I who speak to you am he. It says, in the Greek, it says this, I am he who speaks to you. I am, ego am I. That's exactly, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's exactly what God says in Exodus 3 to Moses. I am has sent you. This is the name of God. He's saying, I'm God. I'm the son of man. And because I'm God and man, I can save you. I'm going to save you. Just then his disciples came back and they were like, why in the heck are you talking to this woman? What's going on? And he's like, hey, I have food that you guys don't know of, okay? Go down with me to verse 39. We're landing the plane. Down to verse 39. He's like, guys, the fields are wheat for harvest. Just the, the fields are white with harvest. Just look around. Many Samaritans from that town. So she goes, what does she do? She leaves her pot at the well and trucks it back to town. And she goes, there's a homeboy. She didn't say homeboy. There's a guy. It's a prophet. And he tells me everything about myself. Okay? Things about, basically, she, just, he's lays, she lays out her filthy resume. She's like, all this stuff. What happens when somebody meets a living God and surrenders to him? What happens? Don't care anymore. All this stuff that I used to be hiding, I was coming at noon. Now, guys, he told me all that stuff. She's announcing it to everybody. Why? Because he accepts me for who I am. He's going to make me new. He's going to rid me of all that stuff and clean me with water and with spirit. Okay? That's the only way it happens. So she just bears all. And because of that, because she bears all, because she has encountered the living God in the person of Jesus Christ, what happens? This whole town basically gets saved. There's a re revival in Samaria of all places. Jerusalem be trying to crucify homeboy, crucify our Lord. In Samaria, there's a revival going on in Samaria because, because this lady's testimony, because she encountered the living God and said, I'm filthy, but he's going to make me clean. He loves me, and he came for me to a well, okay? And so they all say, hey, we, we believed in him at first because of your testimony, but now we've gone to see for ourselves. Can I tell you that's our goal Nathaniel's running an evangelism Bible study in his, in his um, office, and we're going to train you guys to, and give it to you guys to do the same. You're, you know, it's the same thing we do with Muslims when we sit down with them. Our whole goal is this, and this is what Nathaniel said about the Bible study. The, whole, the Bible study's aim is to just get people to Jesus because you're walking through John with somebody, and you're just like, go see Jesus. Jesus. I mean, that's the whole point of our lives is like, don't look at me let me take you where I go to get my stuff. Let me take you to the well that's full of living water. And once you get some of that, you will never be thirsty again. And you'll start taking other people there. That's what happens. And I'm going to close with this. 
the, uh, the coolest thing I feel like about this passage is that, you know, Jesus went there. It was an appointment that he had with this woman. That's clear enough. But if you know your Old Testament, the well and people, husbands meeting their wives at the well, especially with the patriarch, the patriarchal stories. So Jacob, a, a, the servant from Abraham's household, goes and finds Jacob, this is Jacob's well, um, a wife, Rachel, at a well. That's where they meet. That's where the Lord has them meet. And, and he goes, this is the woman that I've been praying for. Moses, same thing. Runs out in the wilderness, running because he murdered a man. Seems like his life's completely out of control. Guess what? It says God takes him to, in the Hebrew, it's not in the ESV. It says it takes him to a well. That's, in the Hebrew, it says, in Exodus chapter th- 3, I think, 2, it says, he sat down by the well. What does that mean? It means the same thing here. It means that God appointed him, took him to a, speci- not a well, the well. He had a perfect plan for Moses' life, and it involved getting lost in the desert for 40 years, pushing sheep around. So Moses got to the place where he said, I am not the dude. I, uh, no, don't, somebody else. Now he's ready. Ha <laughs> ha! What happened at that well? He met his wife. In the, the Old Testament archetype of the well, if you know your patriarchal, I'm kicking wires on, if you know your patriarchal stories, it's the place where the patriarch, the Israelite, the one who is revered, the potential husband, comes and finds a wife. Jesus has not just come to say some words to this woman. He has not just come to say some words to you. He has come for his bride. He has come to make us his own. Spotless. Without blemish. Through his blood. And through his spirit. It's the only way. And he offers it to each one of us. That kind of intimacy. What we were made for. We're not going to find it anywhere else. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it does not return void. Uh, I thank you for the fact that you run the show, Um, not we, and that you love us, and that you called us to be your people. And I pray that you just continue to have your way here today. We love you. We thank you, Jesus, for laying your life down for us and taking it up again. No man took it from you. Um, would you draw us, would you continue to draw us to yourself and cleanse us and sanctify us and assure us of your love? In Jesus' name, amen.